The Mitchell's Front Page Podcast is brought to you by Geelong Bank. Listen live on 94.7 The Pulse, Mondays and Tuesdays from 9 till 11. Davina Montgomery is on the line. Davina, good morning. Good morning, Mitch. How are you? Good, thank you. Well, how are we feeling? We've had two weekends now of mixing together one big state. I've gone to Melbourne on both weekends, and I have to say the city of Melbourne is looking quite quiet, and uh, that was the case on both weekends. Not many people there on the Friday that I went up, and then yesterday I was also in the CBD, and uh, really, really quiet. So I don't know how that's going if people are just reluctant to go back and if they're going to have to do some work to really recover it to pre-COVID levels. Oh, Mitch, they're all down here in regional Victoria. That's where they are. Hmm. Um, (laughs) That's the thing. It's probably the perfect time for those of us in regional Victoria to go up to the city. But uh, no, we haven't made it up there yet. We're certainly planning to do that as soon as we can. But um, it felt a bit more normal this last weekend. I've got to say that that idea of walking out the front door and going, okay, we've got our masks with us, but we don't need to have them on outside. Uh, We can go and catch up with people. In public, we caught up with friends who'd had a baby over COVID, some of our best friends that were, you know, we were in their weddings and they were in our weddings and we hadn't seen their baby boy. He's five months old now. Um, So it was really nice just to have that nice sense of normalcy and I think that's probably a pretty familiar story for a lot of people right now. One area where it's not normal is in schools in that, uh, from what I can understand, students from 5 to 11 years old have to wear a mask and they will have to wear that for some time longer, according to the front page of the Herald Sun today, because it says that the COVID vaccinations for kids is probably not going to be until next year now. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that that really is an issue. Absolutely, Mitch. Uh, look, it's, it is unfortunate because I can only imagine. I mean, I, I know what it's like when you're sitting in work and you've got your mask on and you're trying to have those conversations with people. It is difficult and it does hamper communication. It, it messes with your concentration and kids have certainly had enough impact on their education at the moment. But we also know that COVID infections are running rampant and causing havoc at schools at the moment. Um because there aren't any vaccinations in that under 12 group, then, you know, kids in the classroom get a case of COVID, which they're going to get. It is in the community. We know that. Um, then that's that classroom knocked out for two weeks. They have to isolate. Teachers have to manage part in class, part online, which is a nightmare. And they've had enough of a difficult time as well. So it's, it's disappointing. Um, at the same time, you know, these things just can take a bit of time and we've seen this in overseas as well, even in countries that had the jump on us quite significantly in terms of their adult vaccinations have been a little bit slower with that youngest or that second youngest age group, I should say. Um, and I think there is still a little bit of a lag on the data coming through. I've been hearing some conversations on, on radio and the like about GPs calling in and saying, well, look, we've got the Murdoch Children Institute saying we would suggest caution and then you've got the Royal Children's Hospital or others um, and they're waiting for the, the Atagi advice really. But that general consensus is saying that, you know, we know that kids are in hospital. There's 49 kids uh, in this outbreak that have been admitted into hospital with COVID. Um, that might be similar to the flu. I don't know. I wouldn't know those figures, but they're under nine-year-olds. Mm. So having having kids in hospital is really serious. As a parent of a child who has been in hospital with um, with you know complications from the flu before, it's incredibly scary. And you would do anything to help your child breathe at that point and to never have them in there again. And we've we've done that a couple of times now. Um, I've got family members who've been in the same position. It's terrifying 
seeing your child turning blue, seeing your child not being able to get their breath. And I tell you what, if, if there's a vaccination that can mean my kids vaccinated, um, but they're in that over 12 age group. And I know that any parent who's been impacted by that and seen their child have that really serious um, in the infection and land them in hospital, then they are the first ones in the queue for the flu vaccine every year. And I am absolutely sure that they will be the first ones in the queue for the COVID vaccine when they can get that now. Have we perhaps learned from the AstraZeneca situation that really everyone needs to be on the same page? If you've got even just one or two people who are prominent voices uh, putting question marks about it, then people won't turn out and get vaccinated. And this is the same with vaccination of children. Yeah. People like the Murdoch Children's Research, Research Institute would have to be on board along with politicians and so on. Yeah, absolutely. I was actually really disappointed. Um, I think that was on Friday that the, the head of the Murdoch Children's Institute came out and was was sort of cautioning and, and saying that hesitation because they don't have the data. Well, wait till you've got the data, mm. then interpret it, then give us the advice. Um, because really, it, that just feeds into that, that fear and that uncertainty rather than, and it's not coming from a point of information, it's coming from a, well, we don't know enough yet, so just wait. But we don't have the Atagi advice coming through. We don't have the vaccinations even available in that age group. And you're saying be cautious. So even when we do get to that point when Atagi, and I have no doubt that we will, that when it's approved under Atagi and when that advice comes out about how that vaccine rollout is going to come, those words of caution are going to live on, even though they're not related in the same timeline at that point. Yes. So that to me was foolish um, and... Uh, it, I, I have no doubt that it wasn't headline grabbing, that that wasn't the intention, but gee, it felt like it. And in terms of schools, how is it going with uh, primary school students and teachers, from what I can understand, still having to wear masks? I mean, you've said it is a big barrier to communication, oh. but uh, do we know if it's impacting uh, on their learning? Well, again, these are things that we don't know, but I think anyone who's who's a parent of young kids, certainly teachers would be well aware that, Keeping kids' attention at that age group isn't easy at the best of times, mm. let alone when you can only have eye contact. So that can be really, really tricky. You know, teachers, we ask teachers to do an enormous amount. And one of the most important things that we ask them to do and kind of expect them to do without even really thinking about it is for them to be able to pick up the cues of those visual cues, those emotional cues of how our kids are feeling, how they're responding, are they coping today? Because it can be a day by day, can be an hour by hour thing with kids in, particularly in primary school. Um, and we've taken that away from teachers in a, in a sense by wearing masks that it does make it more difficult to read people's faces. So while I think it's, you know, masks are super practical and amazingly effective at protecting so many of us from catching from this infection and the more that we can drive the infection down is incredibly important. But oh, I just feel for them. It it just sucks. It really does. I can't wait until they can move past it and have that that sense of a bit of safety. And when we know that teachers are vaccinated, but the kids aren't, and there are, like I said, there are kids who, vast majority of them, ninety eight percent of them will be completely fine. But for the two percent that aren't, that's a terrifying thought. And that's two kids in every hundred. Now, if your average school has four hundred kids. That's eight kids in that school, in hospital, struggling to breathe. 
And I remember when I was at school and they used to say you know, even missing one or two days is a big problem and you really need to get kids to turn up. And yet in this situation, we've had a case of every single term this year has been in some way disrupted either by a lockdown or something else. And now if you talk about the situation where if one student in the class gets it, uh, I think the school, or not the whole school perhaps, but just that class has that to class. also go into that 14-day isolation. So that's another point of disruption. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, seven days if you're vaccinated. 14 days if you're unvaccinated. So for anyone under the age of 12, that's 14 days of, of isolation. Teachers, it can be seven days. Um, but it's it's flipped the script a little bit on that, hasn't it? I mean, I remember the same narrative of if you miss a couple of days, you know, it's, it's really not good. Um, I think we're a little bit more aware now, particularly of... Um, of mental health and emotional well-being, managing anxiety, all of those things. We all need a day off every now and then. You just do. You need a day where you just go, you know what, I can't do this today. Um, I'm going to go for a walk and soak up the sunshine and be a person and come back refreshed and better at it the next day. These are these are fundamentals now. We know that you know push, push, push all the time is bad for us and it certainly is bad for kids. That being said, you know, they've, they've shown us with their incredible resilience that they can get through this. Yes, they will, there will be educational impacts um, compared to if this hadn't happened. But the emotional gains, that understanding of, of how to work through really difficult situations, the fact that you can get through really tough times um, where you've been completely out of control, where you don't have any control over what's happening and still come out the other side, I think really do think that's going to stand these kids in good stead. That's lessons that you know, that we didn't get as kids. Um, and it's going to be fascinating to see what comes out of that in the decades to come. But I genuinely feel that it's going to be really positive and that there's, you know, this generation is going to be a special one. Have you been surprised by how resilient the students have been over these last two years? Or did you sort of always know that they had this sort of level of resilience in them? Yeah, no, I, I genuinely did think that they, they had that level of resilience. I mean, I think kids in general are incredibly resilient. Um, I think their capacity for resilience in, in many ways is tends to be a little bit higher than adults, not because they can cope with more or that they can, you know, compartmentalise things more. I think they just see things with a little bit more clarity sometimes because they don't have the weight of experience bearing down on them. Um, but at the same time, it's up to us as the adults in the in the world right now to protect them and to give them the best pathway and to, you know, put our COVID safe arms around them and, and say, you're going to be okay. You know, you've got this. Now, Tim Smith, uh, he resigned or he said he's not going to recontest Q yesterday, which is not the same as resigning because that means he gets to stay in Parliament for another year. But uh, to me, it seemed like the only decision he could make because I watched his media conference live last week and uh, it didn't go very well. The journalists were uh, getting stuck into him, as you'd probably expect, and the pressure would be on them to do so. But uh, when that happens, you've really got to have all the answers, don't you, in order to stay on. And if you can't answer the questions, and he couldn't answer some of them, then that's when it's probably time to go. Yeah. Um, oh, gee, talk about resilience. Uh, politics is a tough game. It's a really tough game. And um, it doesn't need to be as tough as it is a lot of the time. Um, Tim Smith has been one of the brawlers in the corner for a long time. He's, he's a very loud, uh, has been a very public voice 
that has had a good crack at pretty much anyone else on the other side of politics and quite a few on the internals. I mean, Michael O'Brien copped, copped his fair whack from you, didn't he? Mm. So um, he's, you know, from the outside, he looks like someone who's prided himself on being that scalp getter, who's prided himself on being that attack dog. Uh, almost, you know, that Tony Abbott sort of role he seemed to take on for himself, you know, Tony Abbott back when under John Howard, where he was that attack dog. And that really felt like what Tim was going for in his political life. He didn't give any quarter. Um, he tended to not be particularly reasonable, to be honest. He certainly wasn't one to sort of say, well, we'll forgive the human foibles of the people around us and hope that we can get a good representative parliament. It was like, no, you've you've shaken a little bit. Now I'm going to kick you until you get down. Um, so we can't really be surprised that the same things happened to him. You know, it's a bit schadenfreude, but it's kind of the game. If you're going to be the one that, that turns around laying it out to everyone else, that when you make a mistake, and, and it was a mistake, and we all, the one thing he was dead right about is that we all do make mistakes. Um, and we should all be able to come back from them, and we should all be able to, you know, to work through that, to own it, and then move on and create, you know, become better human beings as a result of it, and therefore probably better parliamentarians. Um, but we just don't seem to have that kind of political life at the moment. In a lot of ways, I wish that we did, but facts are facts and we don't. Well, if you're going to hold uh, people to one standard, you've got to make sure that your own house is in order, don't you? And to be an attack dog, you probably yourself have to be squeaky clean. Yeah, I think so. And, um, you know, political standards in all sorts of ways need a bloody good look at them because, you know, honestly the kind of standards that they absolutely, you know, adhere to and ask of each other and hold each other to account to versus the things that they seem to be happy to turn a blind eye to and to just move on, that one's too hard or don't want it or too dangerous. Um, I think this, it's it's not great. Uh, it's certainly far from edifying. I don't know that I'd want to be in politics right now. But, um, but yep, Tim played the game, played it hard and you know, handed out the hits and now he's got his own and I think that is the end. He may come back. There's, there is potential down the track that he may, you know. Stranger things have happened. Um, but for now, you know, Matthew Guy, who is his friend, let's not forget, this is this is not sort of like a, an opposing side of the factions sitting there having a go at each other. Tim Smith is the guy that started the, started the ball rolling on ousting Michael O'Brien for Matthew Guy. They have been very close. They are acknowledged friends. Um, Matthew Guy acknowledged that he's more than just a colleague, that he is a friend. But at the same time, he just looked at him and said, you will not be coming back, um, or words to that effect. And that's Matthew Guy stamping himself as a leader and saying that this is the expectation. You know, we know that Matthew Guy isn't exactly squeaky clean either, but I'm not totally sure that anyone is in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, you know, Matthew Guy's had his own standards questioned on a number of times as well. So we'll see. I find it fascinating when uh, you're someone like Tim Smith, you've given your entire life to politics. You would say he was a career politician because he was the youngest ever mayor for Stonington, something like that, and then got the seat in Parliament. So still quite young, but he's given all of his professional life from what I can see to politics. Uh, how do you reinvent yourself in the middle of your life like that? Well, at the end of the day, politicians are lobbyists. That's, that's really their job. They're, they're in there to be representative at their most purest their job is to in there and lobby and represent for the people of a certain electorate a state a country um so the skills that you that you use in that space when we know that he's he's uh, come from pwc in in the background is one of those you know typical 
you know, cookie cutter politicians. They all seem to go to the same schools and have the same friends and, you know, parents probably go and watch polo together. I don't know. But they, they do seem to come from a very similar sphere, a lot of the people in politics right now. And there will be opportunities. You know, I don't think necessarily it would be a return to PwC, but it wouldn't surprise me to see Tim Smith turn up in some company, some, you know, someone that turns around and says it's worth X amount of money to have you on our staff going out there using your very long Rolodex of contacts. And he will have an an enormous Mm. number of contacts because that's what politicians do. Um, And then that's the post-political career is you go out there and you use those contacts and you... You know, organise the sort of dinners and things that hopefully don't end up on the front of the Herald Sun and make things work in your favour. And that's, that's the way it goes. Just on your point about um, politicians holding the other side to a different standard than themselves, that was perhaps on display a bit last night. I didn't watch 60 Minutes, but I read this morning that they reinvestigated these allegations of the improper use of political staffers at a federal level. And this yes. is at exactly the same time as uh, Adam Somerak, I believe, is now coming before IBAC for four days giving evidence. So this is something that has affected both sides, allegations around the improper use of political staffers. So the question, I suppose, is do we need a federal ICAC? And if we do bring in one, uh, how do you set it up? So, that you know, which model does it use? Does it use the New South Wales approach, which seems to have got a lot more scalps, or does it use the Victorian approach or something different? Uh, I think the answer to the first question is absolutely yes. we long overdue to have a, a federal internet what am I trying to say? <laughs> independent Commission Against Corruption, is that what it stands Thank for? Thank you. An absolutely, and a truly independent commission. That's what. It, that's the key point, is that you can't have, you know, in the past these these sort of bodies have failed because their ties, you know, they're, they're funded by Parliament. We've seen it even stretch into the Ombudsman space at times where the, the government sort of got the, you know, got the ear it's on with a certain... Ombudsman and said, "Oh, we'll just cut a whole lot of money out of out of their department or out of their their budget." Um, it needs to be something that is very independent. I don't know what the structure of that is politically in terms of how you decide on things like what that budget's going to be, what their resources are going to be. But I think that needs to be a cross parliamentary um, body, uh, something that gets decided on how that works. And something that gets the buy-in. The problem, of course, is that the only people that can set this up are the people that it's designed to investigate. So the people that we want to put this in place, they're also the people that stand to lose from it and lose big. So it's it's fraught from the beginning. I don't know that there is any easy answers. I don't know what those answers would be. Uh, if you could take it outside of politics and have a, you know, whether it's... Uh, professors of politics, that sort of thing, that would get together, you know, chuck some lawyers in there, a few other bits and pieces, and get an eminent group of people who are very well versed in the workings of government life and and the law, and to get those people to put together what the structure of this this independent body should be and the scope of what they can investigate and then the processes that they go under. That, I think, would be the ideal version, um, that they would set... You know, a, a reasonable budget, nothing that's ridiculous, but also something that certainly doesn't hamper their work and acknowledges the importance of their work. I think that would make a lot of sense as well. And then in terms of the, the outcomes of it, I think that it, it really, we don't know because we don't know how far all this goes. 
we don't, you know, we can suspect, we can speculate, we can, you know, listen to the wind and read the editorial columns and the letters to the editor. But at the end of the day, we don't know because it hasn't been investigated. So what the consequences of any findings would be, or I think are a little bit hard to speculate on. But um, the Court of Public Opinion is pretty harsh in politics. And as we've seen this, this week in the Victorian Parliament, the Court of Internal Politics is pretty harsh as well. So would people lose their jobs over it? Yep. Should they lose their jobs over it? Depending on what the outcomes are. Yep. But I'd like it to be reasonable as well. I mean, I, I still think as much as I really like the New South Wales model and I like the fact that they've got genuine teeth, that was always the, the problem with the Victorian model was that it was a bit of a toothless tiger, didn't really, you know, was a bit of a slap on the wrist and then let's move on or the government gets to decide when they release things or when they don't. Um, mm. that doesn't work. There's no point in that. That's just, that's just box ticking and wasting people's time. Um, the New South Wales model is much more effective in that space. At the same time, I do think there needs to be maybe a bit of um, sense involved as well, like a little bit of reasonableness. You know, I still go back to that. What was it? The ten thousand dollar bottle of Grange or something that we're yes. missing out of a out of a bundle of stuff. Oh, is it great? No. Is it worth losing a premier over? Oh, it's a big stretch for me. <laughs> I'm going. I don't. I'm, I'm still not buying it. I think that's I think that's sort of almost too far, and that we undermine the um, the importance of that role and the the gravity of that role when you turn around and say, "Well, look, a, a, a bottle of wine goes missing, and therefore you're gone." Um, certainly, if it happened twice, you'd be asking questions. But you know, I think there needs to be a, a little bit of common sense involved in that as well. Now, closer to home, you wanted to raise the Bowen River Development Plan. Yeah, this was a really interesting one. Um, so, it, as long as I can remember, to be honest, Mitch, as long as certainly as long as I was in media in Geelong, there were plans mooted to develop that stretch of the Bowen River, but you know, around back, back of the Caravan Park, um, heading down, sort of towards um, the Bowen Valley Play Park and that sort of thing. It's a beautiful space. It does make an awful lot of sense in a lot of ways for that to be developed. Um, I mean, I don't know that I'd want to be building on it. It looks really tricky ground, personally. But you can see that it's there. It kind of just makes sense that something would go there and that there would be something developed. And if it was, if it ended up being a really um, eco-friendly, design-heavy, very green something, because that's the beauty of that space is that it's open. Uh, there is a lot of greenery. There's that sense of fresh air while being very close to the city, and that's super important and will be incredibly important as we move forward um, into a new era of, you know, being conscious of our impact on the environment. So it feels like an opportunity to do something really, really well, and we know that the market will be there for it in terms of buyers. I think that's a given. Um, so I'd be, I'd be interested to see what they come up with, but I'd really like there to be some really strong standards involved. Without a doubt. I mean, that goes for probably any development, doesn't it? It does. It does. But I think, you know, when this is, it's an iconic area of Geelong. If you've grown up here, if you live here, you know that that stretch. We've all driven down there. We walk along the river and you see that space of land there. So that's kind of, you know, it's important. It is an important area of land in our sense of how we interact with the space. Um, it's, you know, it's not just sort of like an infill in, and like where I live, I live in the suburbs. If someone, you know, there'll be a development next door to me, they'll knock a big house down and they'll build eight other little small houses. That's fine. You know, that's that's development. That's part of this. This is different. 
because it is part of our recreation space as well. It's part of our city's identity, that area. Um, so I, I do think that, you know, if it's a social compact, if us as the people of Geelong are going to allow this to go ahead, I think it's very, very reasonable that we demand this to be done as well as it possibly can and better than anything that we've done before in terms of its its green credentials, in terms of what it adds to the environment because it should be something that makes it better, not worse. And uh, just finally, social housing and even more broadly the issue around housing affordability, you'd expect mm. that to be quite a big issue at the upcoming federal election whenever that may be held. Yeah, I hope so. I really do, Mitch. Um, it's... It, it, you know, you see headlines that talk about the homeless crisis, but, and a lot of time that can be hyperbole when the crisis is thrown around in, in a certain kind of newspaper, but this is a real one. It really is. And it's people's lives and it's generational disadvantage that is a enormous weight on the people that have to live with it. Um, and unacceptable in a society that is as wealthy as we are, that can look after its people better than this. The fact that we don't have a government plan, and I'm saying that it has to be a government plan because I think that's the only way it's sustainable in the long run. But what I don't mean in that is that the government needs to pay for it. I actually don't believe that. I, I feel like so strongly that there are models around the world where governments have worked with private sector on putting in incentives in setting up a structured system uh, with checks and balances that allows private investors, you know, could be your mums and dads. We all know how much people love property investment in Australia. Then if you set up the system that allows people to invest in social housing, that delivers them the ability to provide a house and a home for people with certainty. Not a, you're going to be in this social housing for, you know, you'll have to wait for five years and then when you get it, you know, you can have it until you grow older and then we need to give that house to someone else. It has to be someone's home and it should be someone's home because whether it's the young family that is is in the Geelong Addy um, that we're talking about or whether it's an older person who has had a marriage breakup and then found themselves homeless for the first time in their life, whoever that is, or someone who has struggled for, for years and years and years to get uh, someplace that they can really feel at home, everyone deserves that. And... We absolutely can do that, but we need the structures in place. And I don't think it's it's not good enough to just say, oh, the federal government or the state government should pay for it. Um, that's not sustainable. It's just not going to happen. The need is always going to be bigger. But if you create a structured system in the same way that we do with all sorts of other things, I mean, God, we spend billions of dollars subsidising, um, you know, carbon-based energy production in Australia. We spend billions of dollars on defence. We spend billions of dollars on all sorts of things. Why aren't we spending that money on this? Why aren't we putting this situation in place in the same way that, say, a, um, a Medicare system or an NDIS system? It has an upfront cost, but then it returns over the time and it becomes sustainable and something that feeds in and makes us all better. That's exactly what this should be, but it should be something that then looks at uh, how do we set up a structure that really encourages and supports private investment with the absolute and immutable aim of providing people with a safe, secure, sustainable home for the rest of their life where they can tick that box off and go, right, home is sorted, 
now I can deal with the other things. Now I can deal with the education disadvantage. Now I can deal with the, the joblessness. Now I can deal with the, you know, the training, the adult training. Now I can deal with mental health or, um, you know, anything else that may be going on in their lives. And for so many people, it's one little thing that tips them over into homelessness, one illness, one uh, accident, one relationship breakdown, um, you know, the horrors of domestic violence. These are, these are things that can lead to homelessness. Homelessness isn't a problem on its own. Well, thanks very much for being on the program. Always good to catch up. We've only got a couple of these left for the year, so talk to you in two weeks' time. We will do, Mitch. We're rocketing towards the end of the year. Certainly it's extraordinary, are. but, you know, seems to happen every year, though. <laughs> Thank you very much, Davina Montgomery, with us there. The Mitchell's Front Page Podcast is brought to you by Geelong Bank. Listen live on 94.7 The Pulse, Mondays and Tuesdays from 9 to 11. Or search for Mitchell's Front Page on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you get your podcasts.